This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Scott Lynn is the founder of Masterworks, which allows anyone to purchase and trade shares in iconic artwork. In this conversation, we discuss what the private art market is, how big of a business it is, why art has outperformed the S&P 500 since 2000, and how Masterworks is democratizing access to this growing asset class. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a ton, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is BlockFi. They allow you to keep your crypto, use it as collateral, and receive a US dollar loan or an interest-bearing account all from one single platform, BlockFi. I'm a huge fan of the company. I'm an investor and a user. To me, the most interesting part is you can take crypto or a digital dollar like GUSD and USDC, deposit it into an interest-bearing account, and get very high rates of return compared to the legacy financial world. Bitcoin right now is about 6% APY, and the stable coins are 8.6% APY. Unheard of rates in the legacy system. Head on over to BlockFi.com slash POMP, and you can learn more, understand the risks, and get started today. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. And then lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy-to-understand language while sharing opinions on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com, or go into the description of this podcast, and you'll be able to click on the link there. All right, let's get into this episode with Scott. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang, super excited to have Scott here. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, let's just jump right into uh, your background uh, before we get into all the uh, the fun art stuff. What, uh, what what have you done? Yeah, so my background really is in, in technology. So starting different, different technology companies, originally beginning with uh, casual gaming, moving into online advertising, uh, fintech, and then recently founding Masterworks. But maybe as interestingly for, for your viewers is throughout that entire period over the past 20 years, I've also been collecting art. So to me, historically, art's just been a passion. Uh, but I think over the years, really realized that it's this interesting asset class, which um, for me personally has, has outperformed other asset classes um, and has been a core part of my portfolio. So really, the genesis of my masterworks was how, how do I take this asset class that that I love or this, this market that I think is, is really interesting and just democratize it and make it available to, to everyone. Yeah. And, and what was like the fascination with art or, or how did you originally uh, get into just maybe not even buying art, but just being interested in it? Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, it's, I get that question all the time. So, you know, the real answer is that uh, my mom was just an amateur artist and I grew up with art books, uh, you know, just had it as a kid and, uh, started collecting, I think I bought my first, you know, real painting when I was 19 years old, um, kind of after I made some early money from the first company that I started. So uh, it really started as a passion. And, and in the late 90s at that point, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the asset class that it is today, which is 
you know, this, this year, last year, $68 billion in art sold. It's this you know, large industry. Back then, I, I would say it was, it was big, but it was really more of a um, kind of this really passionate group of small collectors that, that were really, um, you know, focused on cultural significance of artists and, uh, and, and kind of the history of art more so than, than the market dynamics today. Got it. So I got to ask then, uh, you are uh, in New York. What, um, what is your favorite art gallery or museum then? Uh, you know, it's, I, it's also it's a funny question. So I, I always tell people who are out of town, I, my favorite museum, and it's been my favorite museum for, you know, ever is, is the Frick Collection, uh, which I don't know if you've been to or not, but on, on Fifth Avenue, I think 71st Street. Uh, but just, a, you know, it's a really great museum in that you can go and you can see how someone lived uh you know in the, the beginning of the 20th century and uh a really incredible art collection as well so I, I think that's a great experience you know i don't know if it's necessarily my favorite collection in the world but i think it's i think it's a great experience yeah that that is a fantastic one have you ever been to uh the jp morgan library yeah that, yeah, that's, also that's, incredible. yeah that one's probably for me but very similar type of uh, type of thing um all right so uh, let's first talk maybe about your, your art collection and kind of how you've built it. And was there uh, rhyme and reason and strategy or was it more of, let me just go and collect the art that I actually enjoy looking at and, and like? Yeah. So, you know, I, th I think, I mean, obviously that's evolved throughout the years. Um, so I started collecting uh, what I would consider kind of brand name household artists like, uh, like Picasso um, but, but more, you know, B or C example, Picasso is when I was younger and then kind of gravitating to, um, uh, to color field painting, uh, minimalism, then actually moved back to abstract expressionism. Like this is a John Chamberlain sculpture behind me, um, which was, was really the first time in American history that artists started painting in a non-figurative way. So artists like Jackson Pollock, um, Rothko, Clifford Still, Barnett Newman, Krasner, Helen Frankenthaler, um, those, those are a lot of the people that exist in my personal collection, um, although those aren't, aren't necessarily the artists that we focus on for Masterworks, but that is, that is uh, what I've been collecting personally for a number of years. Got it. And then I, I guess part of um, my interest in this entire market is, uh, this is going to be a weird, I haven't even told you this yet, uh, I was reading the book about uh, Steve Cohen, uh, I think it's called uh, uh, gray matter, black matter, whatever, or black edge, I think is what it's called. And uh, in it, uh, he's basically buying a piece of art that's, you know, tens of millions of dollars and it gets damaged as it's getting uh, delivered to him. And it really kind of set me off on this path of like, wait a minute, there's pieces of art that are literally trading at, you know, tens of millions of dollars. These are incredibly rare and, and obviously sought after pieces. And I started just Googling around and I was blown away by uh, not only one, how big the market is, but also two, uh, how many people that you don't know participate in it actually are either large art collectors, uh, either from an investment standpoint or just they enjoy it um, themselves. Yeah, I mean, uh, so to me, the, the big opportunity around Masterworks is just you, you have this massive asset class. Deloitte estimates that the total value of the asset class is $1.7 trillion. Now, you compare that to gold, $5 trillion. Uh, public equities in the U.S. I think are 30, 30 trillion dollars. Um, it, it's this massive asset class and there historically has been no way to invest in it. So most people aren't, aren't aware that it exists simply because it costs millions of dollars to buy a painting. So it's, it's really limited to, to the, the ultra wealthy at this point. 
Yeah, so maybe let's talk just through, um, it seems like there's two groups of people, the people who do it as a, uh, a hobby, right? And they're doing it, they're collecting what they like. And then there's kind of the professional investor. Uh, how do you, now that you've been collecting for a while and actually building a business in the space, how do you decipher between those two? And, and kind of do you try to um, look at those as actually one group of just art collectors or is it pretty separated uh, in the way that they approach actually buying pieces? Yeah, I guess the way I would think about it is, you know, it, it, it certainly, um, I guess your approach to the art market matters and certainly obviously determines uh, returns, but it's not necessarily a requirement. Like if you, if you look at data published by a company called Art Price, uh, Art Price has basically constructed this index on the top 100 artists for the past 20 years. And that index alone, just every single painting created by every top 100 artist has slightly outperformed or probably today materially outperformed uh, the S&P over that period of time. So, so the art market in general is, is, is just really taken off probably because our prices or we believe that, that our prices um, are most likely correlated to global ultra wealth creation. So if you believe the wealthy are getting wealthier, then you, you tend to believe that our prices are going up over time. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's intuitive when you think of it through that lens, right? And obviously that, that is definitely happening in the world. It's pretty compelling data on that front. Um, help me understand, how does the legacy art market, so before Masterwork enters the, the um, kind of landscape, how do uh, these pieces of art go from an artist creating them to actually some sort of uh, initial purchase and then the secondary and, th you know, and third order uh, transactions that actually make the market of art? Yeah, so you, you use the, the correct words. So there's there's two, two different uh, segments of the art market to think about. One is the primary market, and that just very simply means paintings that, that are selling for their first time. And then the, the other is the secondary market, which means paintings that are selling multiple times. Uh, so typically an artist is represented by a gallery. The artist makes a painting, goes to a gallery, sells for the first time to a collector. And then that, that painting gets resold um, thereafter, particularly as the, as the artist market grows or as that artist becomes more popular. Uh, we generally, we, we really at Masterworks only focus on the secondary market today. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of amazing artists in, in the primary market. There's lots of important artists uh, that are definitely investment grade. We haven't focused on it as much just because there's not as much data behind it. So it's difficult for our research team to understand returns. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I would think about the market broadly. Got it. And, and is there segments of it in terms of, uh, you know, I can go to a local store and buy a 20 piece of, a $20 piece of art and kind of put a frame on it, hang it up. And, and that's nice. Then there's obviously the, you know, 50, hundred million dollar pieces of art. That's a pretty big Delta there. How do you actually segment um, kind of the size and, and maybe sophistication uh, of the various pieces or buyers? Yeah, so this is an interesting stat. If you, if you look at just the top 100 artists, the top 100 artists constitute 62% of the overall art market, which is $68 billion a year. So if you just think about, you know, this from a total probability perspective on being an artist, right, there's, I don't know, probably billions of artists that have existed historically. Um, and there's really a very, very, very few number of people that wind up uh, kind of commanding the art market overall. So today, when we when we talk about the sixty-eight billion billion dollar market, we're really talking about hundreds of artists that are that are the vast majority of that. And then, 
I guess, uh, what puts somebody in that top 100, right? Is it the value of the individual pieces of art? Is it um, something that is less quantitative and, and more kind of the story behind the art? How does that get determined? In today's world, it's, it's probably different than historically. Historically, I would like to think, and I think a lot of people in the art market would like to think, that value is correlated to what we call cultural significance. Um, and cultural significance can broadly be defined by uh, you know, artists that institutions collect, artists that appear in other important collectors' collections, um, artists that, that appear in shows with other important artists. There's different ways to measure cultural significance. But um, you know, in today's world, a lot, of, a lot of values are just driven by commercial dynamics. They're, they're driven by uh, kind of mega galleries that have a lot of money, that promote artists heavily, that, that generate awareness. Um, and you know, the, the other thing that's really interesting about the asset class, I think this is probably unique to art. I've, I've, um, you know, I haven't thought of other asset classes that are like this, but an artist lives and creates so much work, right? So many paintings and then, then eventually they pass away and then those paintings get donated to institutions over time. So it's one of the few asset classes which declines um, in terms of, of volume or supply and that inherently drives up returns because of scarcity. So that's a, that's a really unique characteristic about art that I think isn't totally appreciated by most people. And we see that, we see that with a lot of major artists. You know, if you take an artist like Jackson Pollock, I think today there's, there's something like 23 drip paintings in private collections. Um, most of those paintings are not even what, what anyone would consider A paintings, right? They're B paintings or C paintings, but they still sell for $30 million because there's nothing else left. Um, so that, that's really, that's a really unique characteristic about the asset class. And do those not get replaced over time? Like those artists get replaced by new artists? Like, like how does that mechanism of, uh, as an artist kind of ages out of the market basically, and, and they've got a now a finite set of work, uh, is there not, um, an increasing demand cause there's just more artists or is it just that individual artist, uh, is finite and that's what drives the value of that specific collection? This is one of the first questions that our that our research team studied uh, a couple of years ago, and I, and I think it's a it's a critical um, it's a critical thing to understand about the art market. So the example that I, I like to use with new collectors is if you buy a Rembrandt today, do you think that will appreciate faster or slower than buying you know an artist like Picasso? Um, and the thing that you see in the data on the art market, which is is uh, is interesting, is that Appreciation tends to follow recency, but in very wide increments, meaning art created in the 70s and 80s, for example, is appreciating at much faster rates than art created post-World War II, and art created in the 19th century, or, or an artist like Rembrandt, is now appreciation is totally stopped, uh, meaning that if you buy a Rembrandt for $10 million today, and you sell it 20 years from now, you'll probably sell it for $10 million plus inflation. Um, so it, it is important to collect artists. You know, in today's world, I would say artists that, that are post-World War II um, are most, most compelling and most, most interesting. There's, there's some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, you know, the artists, artists in the last 60 years um, are, are probably the, the most investable. Got it. And then how does an artist, you know, let, let's say take uh, one of the top 100 artists, 
they create a piece of work. Uh, how does that original price, so in that primary sale, where does that price get set? Do they go out to kind of a small group of uh, investors or, or purchasers that they know and, and there's a price determined there? Is the artist at um, kind of so much demand that they can just set their price and just take it or leave it? Yeah, in those, in those early days, it's, it's really determined by the gallery. So the gallery sets the price, and oftentimes that price is even the same for any work by the artist. So independent of the painting, it's $100,000 a painting or, or whatever the number is. Yeah, it's super interesting. And, and then I guess uh, the secondary market is more kind of market dynamics, uh, where it's just where do buyer and sellers meet? Yeah, that, that's right. And, and the way to think about the secondary market is you have three auction houses in the U.S., Christie's, uh, Sotheby's, and Phillips. And those auction houses, you know, been around forever. Like Sotheby's, up until recently going private, was the oldest company on the New York Stock Exchange at 275 years old, right? So this is an asset class which literally has been traded publicly at auction for hundreds of years. So one, one of the things that, that fascinates us about it is you have one of the, the oldest data sets on performance of an asset class there is, which, which gives our research team the ability to really analyze um, data from, from long periods of time by different segments of the market, periods, um, et cetera. Yeah, it's super fascinating. Um, and, and then I guess, how, is there any data that you guys have seen in terms of um, that legacy art market uh, because it's been hard for individuals uh, who are not ultra wealthy to participate, especially at the higher end of uh, the art market? Uh, is it one of these things where, you know, the top 1% of art uh, collectors or investors own 90% of the art or 20%? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a small number of collectors that you know, that I guess, quote unquote, control the art market. Um, you know, whether the number's a thousand or 2000, I, I don't really know. Um, but there's there's a small number of people that have hundred million dollar plus collections uh, that are actively trading paintings in and out of the art market. Um, yeah, now, you know, there's different ways to think about that too. Like a lot of people think about that and say, oh, you know, there's a thousand people that control a $68 billion market. So one way to look at it, the other way to look at it is there's a thousand people that are sort of like mini companies on their own uh, that are buying and trading these paintings at scale, so. I'm assuming that the thousand top people are uh, incredibly sophisticated. Do they have teams and, and they're like very data-driven on this? Or is it a, I walk in, I see a piece I like, you tell me it's 30 million, I do a little negotiating and we settle on a price. Yeah, I mean, they're incredibly sophisticated. There are people, like you mentioned, like Steve Cohen, right? Like they're, they're very smart, successful people generally because, because they have to be in order to, to, to buy art like this. Um, but I, I would say that the data in general, the art market has, has really suffered historically. Um, when, when we started Masterworks, one of the very first things we did was we went out and we purchased auction catalogs from, I think, the 1960s through present and we had a team of 25 interns actually digitize individual paintings, what they're purchased for and then sold for publicly and post that data uh, on our website so investors can, can access it. And it's just shocking to me that you have a market this big where, where something has never been digitized, like everything in our world is digitized, uh, but the art market is, is just you know kind of behind everything else I would say. For sure. And then um, as you kind of got into art and got more sophisticated about it, at what point did you have the idea for Masterworks and kind of what was that original idea or the genesis to, hey, I actually want to go build a company here? 
Yeah, I, I would say that was really that was really the time that the blockchain stuff was um, was was hot, and you know we were thinking about different blockchain ideas. I think we didn't, you know, then we we didn't totally fully appreciate the regulatory dynamics with um, with what we're doing today. You know, we've we've now wound up with. 53, 54,000 people on the platform, you know, every offering is filed with the SEC, uh, our sales team is regulated by FINRA, you know, we're, we're a highly regulated business. Um, so we, we initially thought of the concept as this kind of quick and dirty startup idea, which evolved into something more, more complicated, but that, that, was the, that was the genesis. Got it. And, and then kind of explain today what that value proposition is. So I come in, I create an account, what can I do and, and why would I do that? Yeah, you, you come to the Masterworks website today, you create an account, uh, you have a call with our membership team. We, we like to speak to every single investor that uh, is interested in investing on the platform. And then basically our, our offerings, our investment vehicles, our single painting vehicles. So we show you a particular painting, uh, we tell you what the historical returns are of that particular painting. Um, we have a risk rating associated with the painting. You can read a full offering circular on the painting, very similar to how you read an S1 for a company going public like Uber, you can read an S1 equivalent, what's called a 1A uh, for, for painting, painting uh, going public or being securitized with us. So we, we give you lots of information on, on the artist, the market, the returns, the risk, and you can make a case-by-case -case decision on whether you, you want to invest in those offerings. Um, and then just recently, we were, we were really excited about a trading platform that we announced, um, I think roughly a month ago. Uh, so it's in beta. We have one painting on it. In the next next few weeks, we're rolling out more and more paintings so people can can start trading securities and paintings. So we we've really taken an asset class, which historically is you know the only way to allocate to it is if you have ten million dollars to buy a painting, and we've securitized it so anyone can invest in these paintings and trade securities in these paintings. So I guess well, there's a whole bunch of questions in here, but. Um when I buy into an offering, right? So just say it's a Picasso, it's $10 million. I put in some amount of money. How do you determine how much money is like the minimum buying? And then how, is there a maximum in terms of how much of that 10 million piece I can own? Yeah, so we, we don't really have minimums or maximums. I guess it's not really how we think about it. But one of the reasons we like to talk to our investors is we like to understand how they're investing today, what their risk tolerances are, kind of educate them on different segments of the art market, different risk profiles, and then and then try to figure out what the right allocation is for them um, to an overall portfolio. And, and that's the approach we've taken mainly because we just we very quickly learned that obviously nobody knows how to think about investing in art. Um, so we, we try to provide some some advice through through that process. Got it. And then um, obviously if I buy, uh, let's call it $100,000 worth of a $10 million Picasso, I don't get to hang the Picasso in my house. Uh, where is that piece kind of stored and, and kind of, um, you know, is there any other components there that people should, should think through? Today, those paintings are stored uh, in art storage. There's lots of high-end art storage facilities through, throughout the world. But uh, you know, we're working with artist foundations now in the states to collaborate with them and kind of have them dictate where they would like the paintings to be uh, displayed long term. So whether that's a retrospective, uh, one of the offerings we did, we're, we're working getting uh, the artist working in the retrospective, or just you know a local institution that the artist cares about. Um, ideally, we would 
we would hang these paintings throughout the world where members of Masterworks can go and see them and, uh, you know, we don't have to keep them in storage. Got it. And, and then at any point, would you actually, um, like put them into some sort of art gallery and, and there's like a cash flow component to um, lending it out to these people, or is it really just the appreciation of uh, the value of the piece of art is where the return is driven from? Yeah, we, we do have a gallery in Soho that we, we operate where uh, investors can come and see the paintings and we do events there. Obviously in today's world, that's not happening right now, but uh, hopefully it'll happen again soon. Um, but, but the way I would think about investing in art is it's really just capital appreciation. There's theoretical ideas on how you can rent paintings out and do different things to generate income, but, but the majority of the money is just, just made from principal appreciation. Got it. And, and then you mentioned um, kind of the secondary trading function uh, of the actual shares. So if I buy kind of a fractional ownership of a piece of art, um, I'm assuming that historically, uh, because there hasn't been a fractional ownership, there hasn't really been kind of um, any sort of market there. It sounds like you guys are actually building that now. And, and the hope is that that'll be a liquid market where um, people can go ahead and, and actually get liquidity uh, after some holding period, maybe. Yeah, so we so we have uh, we have trading now that's active for for one painting. Uh, next week we're, we're rolling out other paintings, uh, so we're we're definitely seeing a ton of interest around investors setting up trading accounts and really trading shares between each other. Um, it's early, so I don't I, you know we don't exactly know how to think about it long term, but we we fundamentally believe that from a product perspective, we we need to build out the trading platform to give people interim liquidity because, um, you know, for most investors waiting three to seven years for a painting to sell is, is a, is just a longer, a longer allocation. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a part of the business. Got it. And then I guess part of the mechanism here is if I'm buying fractional ownership into a uh, piece of art, are you guys going and buying the piece of art and then turn around and securitizing it? Or do you kind of pseudo securitize it almost like an SPV to then go acquire it? Like, like what's the sequential uh, mechanism there? Yeah. So we, you know, based on how the art market works um, to really get quality, I guess, quality paintings that, that we think have, um, have potential for good returns. We really have to buy those paintings with balance sheet capital. So we go out, we buy the painting with our own money, we turn around um, and we, we, you know, we put it into an LLC, file it with the SEC, and then we start selling shares in it. And our, our management fees are similar to a hedge fund in that we earn one and a half percent per year plus 20% of profit uh, when a painting sells. So that's, that's how we earn our fees. Got it. And, and then how do you think about art? Um, I know that it's outperformed uh, the S&P since 2000, which is pretty impressive, right? Kind of a two decade type, um, you know, data set there. But how does it perform um, differ in the good times versus the bad times, right? We're kind of in this economic crisis or liquidity crisis right now. Do you guys see better or worse or maybe just the same type of performance in, in these uh, economic downturns? Yeah, so we did uh, we we did a, a research study uh, with Citigroup at the end of 2019 on correlation. So correlation between art and other asset classes. Most investors really care about the correlation between art and the S and P. Um, generally speaking, art is an uncorrelated asset class, so it's close to zero for all other asset classes. And and part of the reason is take a, you know take a step back and think about that is because 
It's this global asset class, which is not country specific. You can carry a painting across borders. Um, it's really owned by the ultra wealthy. And there's the scarcity dynamic where important artists' bodies of work are constantly declining for, for the reasons we talked about before. Um, so that just, that just causes it to behave differently than most other asset classes. So the, the correlation factor specifically between art and the S&P is, uh, I think we concluded as 0.13, um, so basically zero. And then if you pressure test that during different financial crises, sort of what you see is during 2000, the art market increased in value. 2008, 2009, it had the highest correlation ever to the S&P, which was roughly 0.4, 0.5, meaning it declined half as much as the S&P declined. Uh, interestingly, in 2016, the art market declined when the S&P increased in value. Um, the, the, our, best guess at, our best guess as to why that was is most likely Brexit, uh, capital controls going into place in China. Um, and then now, you know, it's, it's too early to tell, but we think uh, during the, the, current, the current corona crisis, it will likely be uncorrelated. Um, so it just, it just behaves differently. Yeah, and, and I guess, is there a geographic difference? Like, do you see um, maybe kind of price arbitrage based on geographies, or you mentioned capital controls, obviously, would definitely affect it. Like, anything else you see on a geography-by-geography geography basis? And we definitely see, you know, when you think about the art market over the last 20 years, you, you definitely see this influx of, I guess what I would say is sort of like ultra-wealthy countries coming into the art market, right? China today is a huge player in the art market, roughly a quarter of the, mar the market overall, whereas 10 years ago, I think it was close to zero. Um, you know, Russia came in in a big way, now it's kind of gone um, with, with sort of the oligarch dynamic. And so you do, you know, as countries build up these populations of people that are ultra wealthy, you do sort of see that impact the art market overall. The US is, is now roughly 25% of the market. Got it, and then I guess like, how much of the platform you guys have built, right? So take somebody like me who uh, probably has much more interest in art than uh, expertise in art. Um, obviously, you mentioned uh, kind of having a team be able to uh, talk to um, the customers or, or the users of the platform and, and kind of get educated, uh, but there's nothing like that experience. Um, is there other things that you either see users on the platform doing or things that you guys are doing in terms of uh, just helping people, I guess, get up kind of the learning curve and, and really just avoid, you know, the, the classic mistakes in the market? Yeah, so we have a uh, we have a feature on the website which is is unlocked uh, as soon as someone invests called our price database, and that that basically gives you all of our return data by artist market uh, that our research team uses to to uh, uh, I guess inform our purchasing decisions. So we we have roughly forty artists that we're focused on this year in purchasing, and all of that that decision was really driven by data from our research team on which artist markets are accelerating most quickly. So we, we expose that data to investors to learn about the market. I, I think fundamentally we believe the more data we give people, the more training we give people, the more engaged they become. So that is, that is part of, I guess, how we think about this process. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier kind of uh, the di digitization of art. And I think you were specifically talking about a lot of the data um, and the information, right? Uh, but the art still being physical and either a painting, a sculpture, whatever. Um, have you guys seen any interest from the legacy uh, art market in 
kind of digital art, so, so actual not physical art, but, but it being represented digitally in any way? Yeah, there's, there's lots of artists experimenting with that today. I think from a commercial perspective, we still haven't really seen it take off. Um, but there's obviously lots of people focused on that. Yeah, because it feels to me like um, part of the beauty, like the sculpture you know you have behind you, like being able to physically see it in full three dimensions and walk around it is, is a big piece of the value rather than, um, you know, you can, I guess, somehow make it 3D on, on a screen, but it's just not the same thing as being able to, to yeah. you know, actually enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I personally believe that, uh, you know, it's, I mean, that could change generationally, right? Like, I think 20 years from now, I mean, we, we may be the old one saying that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Got it. And then I guess, um, what are the lessons learned that you've had since you started the platform, right? So you kind of go into it, you've got this idea of, hey, we're going to create uh, more access for people or democratize access to this market. You obviously came at it with uh, a ton of expertise and experience. Anything that either one surprised you as you've gone down this path or, or, uh, or lessons learned? I, I, think we, uh, I think we expected there to be more demand from our investors on, on what I would call household brand name, blue chip artists, or artists like Picasso. Um, and, and what we've really seen is there's, there's actually a, a pretty strong demand from, from our investor base for you know, what we would define as, as mid to late career living artists. So, you know, probably half of our uh, acquisitions now are really focused on artists like Banksy or Cause or Cecily Brown or, you know, Alex Katz, some, some of these people that are, that are really well known names in the art market, um, but maybe aren't necessarily a, um, a Picasso. And, and I guess just thinking out loud, is some of that driven, so take Banksy, for example, uh, one, the type of art that's done, right, uh, I think is very attractive to kind of maybe younger people or a certain generation, to a lot of the ways I think people come across Banksy is through uh, the virality online, right? Whether it's, you know, the stunt type stuff or, or just uh, pictures right. being taken and being shared online. Uh, and then I'm assuming that there's a certain demographic that's naturally drawn to a technology product that, you know, you guys have built. Do you think that is kind of driving that interest in a very certain subset of the artists, or do you think it that's an overgeneralization? You know, I, I mean, I think it's probably a little bit of an over overgeneralization. So we get when 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 um, you look at a particular offering from us, we give you two things that you focus on. One is historical return, um, and then two is risk category. So for a lot of these blue chip artists um, that are legacy artists like Picasso, we, we would risk rate that artist an A, meaning our, our lowest risk rating. But the returns would probably be 10% historical returns. Whereas someone like a Banksy, and I, these, aren't, these aren't exact numbers, but, but we, would, we would risk rate a B, and his historical return might be 15 or 16%. So I think what we've seen is just people are more naturally gravitated to those higher returns. Um, and willing to take more risks to, to, to achieve them. Got it. And, and I guess like artists like that, how many of them in your experience uh, are aware of maybe the financialization of the market versus they're just making things that they think are cool or they want to make and, and are more kind of creative and expressive? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely, you know, I'm, I'm, fr I'm friends with a lot of these artists. So, we, we, <laughs> I, you know, some, some of them are, are aware of masterworks. And I would say they fall into two different camps. Either, you know, one camp doesn't like the idea of art being viewed as this, this financial asset class. Uh, the other camp likes the idea of art being democratized. So 
they don't only have to sell paintings to the ultra wealthy. Um, so, you know, the reaction is different depending on the person. I could definitely see that with artists, <laughs> without a doubt. Um, and, and then I guess uh, from a technology standpoint, uh, you mentioned initially um, kind of looking at blockchain ideas and, and technology. Uh, today, the platform has some of that still incorporated or have you been um, kind of gravitated towards a non-blockchain technology stack uh, and then kind of a more traditional regulatory uh, type framework? Yeah, we, we really, uh, just because of the, you know, the, the, I, I guess the, um, the regulatory overhead for the business, we, we really had to move away from blockchain for the time being, just because it, uh, you know, we haven't frankly seen acceptance um, by the SEC um, for a lot of these blockchain com concepts. And we, we were actually, if you look at our very first SEC filing, um, well, I guess it'd be two years ago now, I think we were the very first company ever to um, have some blockchain concepts qualified in our offering. Um, but, you know, the, the, um, the regulatory, I think, environment has gotten more and more difficult rather than less and less difficult. So we haven't ever focused on it. I think that is a, uh, a fairly uh, popular viewpoint that you have. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, look, part of it too is uh, there's learning, right? Like they have an incredibly difficult job already and then you start throwing new technology and kind of all these different things. And, and uh, I think it makes sense, but it sounds like you guys have been able to navigate that uh, without having to use the blockchain technology and, and can you know, kind of offer that uh, liquidity people. Yeah, and, and I do think that art is an asset class, which historically has, has been viewed as uh, uh, you know, a little bit of an insider's game. And, and I do think kind of SEC qualification of these offerings has added uh, just a little bit of transparency or trust to, to, uh, to massive class that people are otherwise skeptical of. For sure. Um, and the last question on the art side is just how um, the legacy art market change or how do you think it will change as things like fractional ownership and, and kind of the digitization of the data and some of the market? Uh, what does that impact look like on, on um, kind of that legacy art market? You know, we, we talked to a lot of institutions that have this thesis that, you know, a lot of these illiquid asset classes are inherently undervalued just because they're illiquid, uh, they don't have access to institutional capital, et cetera. Um, we tend to share that. So, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that if you can allocate 3% of every investment portfolio to art, uh, it's a game changer, right? I mean, you're dumping trillions and trillions of dollars into the art market. So we, we think this is a, a really interesting opportunity to take an asset class, which historically has been limited to the ultra wealthy, which historically hasn't been investable, but has outperformed other asset classes, is uncorrelated and therefore a good diversifier to any portfolio. Um, and make it investable by everyone so everyone can, can own part of it. Um, that's, that's what's really exciting. So, we, you know, in, in that scenario, you, you could see a world where asset prices increases just because there's more, there's more capital inflows to the market overall. Yeah, it's really interesting, I think, to kind of think through uh, almost in some way that digitization uh, makes it a more market expanding, uh, you know, there's market expansion. Uh, and I guess, would you then say it's not only uh, an increase in accessibility for uh, like on a socioeconomic uh, basis, but also on a geographic basis? Like, like now I don't have to actually have physical access to the piece. I can be anywhere in the world and, and gain financial exposure. 
Totally. And, and I think it's also really interesting for artists, right? Because now you have all these artists, which historically, I mean, being an artist is a really, I mean, it's tough, right? That's a difficult career path. Um, and, and I do think that, that adding more capital to the market makes it easier to support more artists at every stage of their career. Yeah, super interesting. Um, I end each uh, interview asking people what their uh, favorite book is or the most important book you've ever read. What would that be for you? Well, that's, I mean, for me, from a business perspective, it's an easy answer and everyone that's worked for me always knows this. It's, uh, it's a very traditional book, but it's Michael Porter's Competitive Strategy. Uh, that's, that's one book that I've taken every business I've ever had and tried to uh, run it through the five forces framework. Uh, so that's definitely been the most influential. Why does that one stick out to you? You know, I think, I think I started my career really focusing mainly on execution, right? So working really hard, um, you know, trying to, to get things done, you know, the fastest, first to market, et cetera. And I think what, what unfortunately took me years to realize is that, you know, if you're working really hard at the wrong thing, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so... You know, you you want to you want to choose the right thing to work really really hard at first, and then <laughs> work really hard at it. So, um, yeah, I mean that that is just a, a great framework for thinking about differentiation, right? How do you differentiate a business and make it as easy as possible um, to avoid competition and capture market share over time? Uh, and I think a lot of our you know a lot of the businesses I started, a lot of businesses I've worked with, have really benefited from that. That's awesome. I, uh, I definitely agree. If you're working on the wrong thing, that's probably not a good idea. Um, where can people go find you uh, online or uh, find out more about Masterworks? Yeah, you can learn about the team, uh, the business at www.masterworks.io. Um, you know, just create an account, sign up for membership, talk to our membership team, and we can, we can get, get you started investing in art. Awesome, man. Listen, I appreciate you giving us the crash course. I feel like, uh, uh, art is one of these things that a lot of people appreciate looking at, but they've got no clue about the business behind it. So, uh, you know, I, I learned some today and hopefully everyone else does as well. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. My goal is to educate as many people with these conversations as possible. So please go subscribe on your favorite podcast channel, leave a five-star rating and a review. These things really help the podcast get higher up on the popularity charts, which ultimately brings more people to learn. Also, don't forget you can go to YouTube to watch each conversation in video format as well. Just search my name, Anthony Pompliano, on YouTube, and you'll find our channel with hundreds of awesome and informative videos. Thanks again for listening to this one, and I'll see you for the next one.